0: You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. And Jesus happens to notice that there are two boats on the shore, and one of them is Simon's. Now, this is not the first time that Simon and Jesus have met. In the previous chapter in Luke, Jesus comes to a synagogue. He pronounces his, his manifesto. I am here because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He is ousted from his synagogue because he makes the crowd angry and then goes out in the streets and begins to perform miracles and ends up at Simon's house and has lunch with him. We don't know exactly how they met what that first conversation was like he just ends up at Simon Peter's house they have lunch and while they're there Peter's mother-in-law is sick she has a high fever and is in bed and they say to Jesus you mom is mom is sick and Jesus goes into the room and heals her and yet when we open this story Simon is back to fishing he's not following Jesus he's not listening to Jesus teach he's just doing his work, because I think there are ways in which even when God breaks into our lives and does what God does, life goes on. So Jesus had shown up in their house. He had healed Peter's mother-in-law, but Peter went on with his life. I mean, he had to go back to work, and he and his partners are back out on the lake in their boats doing their fishing, Fishing, and they happen to meet Jesus again, right, that Jesus just happens to show up. And, and this, I think, is significant because it points to the ways in which God just keeps showing up in our lives. lives go, our lives go on, and we have an experience with God. We, we come to a service, we, we have a moment of praying through, or a moment of blessing, or a moment of insight, and then life... Continues to happen, and we go on. And yet God keeps, keeps showing up again and again. And this is, this is some of what we mean when we talk about the goodness of God or the grace of God, is that it, it's relentless. God just keeps showing up. He keeps presenting himself to us. And so it's no different here. Peter is going about his business, doing his work, and here is Jesus again. The same Jesus who's already healed his mother-in-law is here again and needs his boat. And Peter is happy to be interrupted happy to let Jesus do it. But there's, there's a striking detail in the text. Jesus sees that there are two boats, and he chooses one. Now, this, this is a hard truth to swallow, that God works in the world in such a way that he works with some and not with others, that God chooses to work with one boat and not the other. And there's a, there's a part of us, I think, that wants God to be fair. And we don't want to be the person in the other boat. And most of the time when we tell this story, of course God chooses our boat. <laughs> but the, matter, but the, the fact of the matter is, most of the time, God is choosing someone else's boat. I mean, imagine you're there at the shore. Here is Jesus teaching this great crowd of people gathered around. And there's your boat and there's Simon's boat. And when the teacher needs a boat, of course he chooses Simon's, not yours. And and a lot, I think, a lot of maturity comes when we're willing to accept the fact that sometimes Jesus chooses someone else's boat and not ours. That He doesn't always have to choose my boat for me to be happy, for me to be blessed, for me to be thankful, for me to show gratitude. That... So much of the Christian life is, is taking joy in the fact that other people are chosen. Wow. That other people are moved by God. That other, other people are, are moving in their calling. That I, I think there, there has to be a way in which we rejoice as much in someone else's blessing as we do in our own. In someone else's calling as we do in our own in as much as someone else's boat is being chosen, and not, and not our own. And, and then, I think the other side of this, though, is this is the mystery of God's work in the world. He always chooses one boat out of the two, but for the sake of eventually drawing both boats into the story. Do you, do you see what happens? He, he's, he gets into Simon's boat, and then immediately says, launch out into the deep. They get out into the deep of the lake, cast your net. Peter, of course, has to say something. He doesn't just do it. I mean he eventually does it, but he can't just do it. He has to say first, We fished all night, you know. And that didn't work. And and okay, we'll do it. And and they throw their net over, they catch this great draft of fish, and they're dragging it into the boat, and it's too much. It's tearing their nets. And what do they have to do? They have to call the other boat. And this, this, I think, points to the way that God works in the world. He chooses some. He doesn't choose all. Many are called, few are chosen. Not everyone is elect, but the elect are always elect for the sake of the non-elect. He only gets in your boat because he means to draw the other boat into your story. He, he only gets in your boat at all because he cares about the people in the other boat. This is the difference between you and your neighbor that slept in this morning. Your neighbor who's headed headed down to the bar this morning. That your neighbor who's watching TV right now. It's not that you love God and have achieved something they haven't achieved. It's not that somehow God has privileged you and forgotten them. It's that God is so in love with them, he's drawn you here so that you can care for them. This is a love story about them. You are the one God has drawn into the story at the beginning, so that they can be included in the end. And I think this is absolutely crucial, that we as people of God understand this. He got in our boat, but it's only because he cares about the people in the other boat. And whatever blessing he brings into our life, Whatever draft of fish we're bringing up that's too much for our nets, it's because he means for us to have to call on other people to come and help. Right? That this, this is the way that God works. But notice, he only brings about that blessing when he calls them out to the deep. And, and I, think, I think this is an important detail. He says, press out into the deep, launch out into the deep, and there cast your nets. And, and there are, I think, two kinds of depths that we we have to keep in mind. One is, is the depth of mystery, the depth of the fact that God is God and we're not. And God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And there is a mystery to what God is doing in the world. And some of what, will, what needs to happen in your life will not happen until you come to terms with the fact that God's ways are beyond us, that it's too deep for us. Right? Your ways are past finding out. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It's not entered into the heart of human beings what God has prepared for us. So that some of the Christian life is being called out into the deep of God, you're God and we're not. God, your ways are past us. Your, your thoughts are beyond us. And some of the discipline has to be brought into our life is recognizing that God's ways are untraceable. And if we're not careful, we'll sometimes talk as if we always know how to keep up with what God is doing. And we can leave the impression on other people that God is predictable, but this this is absolutely crucial. God is faithful, but he's not predictable. God is faithful, but he is not predictable. And there is no good thing that's going to come into your life the way you expect it to. There is no good thing that's going to come into your life the way you expect it to. Because God's ways are not our ways. And if you want to become the person who's out into your calling, fulfilling what you're called to do, then immerse yourself in the mystery of who God is and what God is like. That is, that is beyond us. But the other depth is the depth of sorrow, the depth of suffering. I wish it weren't this way. And I don't know why it is this way. But it seems to be the case that God does no great work with people who do not have great sorrow. I don't like that. I don't say that glibly. I don't say that in any kind of cliched sense. I don't don't want it to be true. But think of any story of any great man or woman of God, and their story is always a story of great sorrow. It's always a story of great suffering. And there's, there's something about the depths of suffering that open us up to the depths of God's mystery. I don't know why it is that way. I don't know what God's purpose is in working that way, but that is the way that it seems to happen, that the only way for us to get into the depths of who God is, is for God to draw us out into the depths of the brokenness of the world and the way the things that are not right in our lives and the lives of the people around us. And you you can see this in story after story after story after story of men and women of God who are incredible saints, incredible witnesses, and yet their lives are lives filled with darkness and confusion and pain and betrayal and loss, and yet somehow out of that depth, they become acquainted with the depths of God. And I, I think there has to be a willingness to say, God, I want to know you. And if that means I have to be acquainted with sorrows, then so be it. If I ha- Again, we're, we're not masochists. We don't rejoice in suffering. There's nothing good in suffering itself. Suffering itself is not good. I mean, it's not going to be part of our life once God sets the world right. And yet, when God comes among us, when God lives his own life humanly among us, he lives it as the man of sorrows. He lives it as the man who is betrayed by everyone who loves him and that he loves. A man who ends up absolutely alone, crucified, crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not just my family and friends and disciples, but God, you have forsaken me too. And that is the life of God lived in the world. And I think there has to be a, a, a readiness in us. not Again, not glib, not immature, not cliched, but there has to be a readiness in us in say, that says, God, I want to know the depths of you. And if the only way to know the depths of you is to be brought out into the depths of sorrow, then so be it. And not just the sorrow that comes in your own life, but the sorrow of other people's life. I mean, one of the things that marks the saints, that marks the the holy men and women of God, is that they're not just concerned about the suffering that they're experiencing. They're concerned about the suffering that their neighbors are experiencing. They're broken by what breaks other people, not just by what's breaking them. They're weeping for what's happening to those around them, not just what is happening to them. And this, again, I don't know why it's this way, but this is a mark of holiness. When we are weeping for what hurts others more than we're weeping for what hurts us, it's a sign that the depths of God are coming alive in us, that we're becoming more like Christ. We're being filled with the Spirit when we are suffering with those who suffer and not just suffering with our own hurts and pains And so he says, launch out into the deep and cast your nets. And again, Peter somewhat reluctantly does it. We fished all night. It it didn't work, but we, we will do it. And they catch this incredible draft of fish that is too much for their nets and too much for two boats. And I don't know how you picture this, but these were fairly large boats. We're talking about 30 feet, 25 to 30 feet length, and pretty wide flat bottom boats. And, and now they're overwhelmed with this draft of fish. An, in, an incredible miracle, right? But then notice how the story ends. The very last line of the story that we read is And they left everything and followed him. Now think about this you're a fisherman this is your career. This is what your dad did and your grandfather did. Now you have the family business and you and your partners, you've, you've made a career out of fishing and you know fishing inside and out. And then you have this bizarre experience with this teacher, Jesus, where he tells you to fish at a time when you know they're not going to, you're not going to catch any fish, but you catch more fish in this one moment than you've caught in your entire career. And Jesus says, now leave it and let's go. I mean, we don't know what happened to all those fish. But Peter didn't get to keep them. Here, here is this amazing miracle from God. Here, here's more fish than you could ever imagine. Now leave it all and come with me. And I don't I don't know why God is this way. God is, is strange. But this is often the way he works in our life. He does something incredible. He he works miraculously only immediately to call us to leave it. The problem is with some of us, we're only interested in the God who produces the miracle, not the God who calls us to leave it. We're interested in the God who shows us how to catch more fish than we've ever caught in our lives. But we're not interested in the God who says, now leave all that and come with me. We're interested in the God who can give us a miraculous child. We're not interested in the God who says, now take that child to the mountain and offer him to me. We're interested in the God who can bless us. We're not at all interested in the God who says, now when there is no more blessing, will you come with me? But this is, as, as we say, what separates the men from the boys. This is what separates the disciples from everyone else. We're either with Jesus Because we love Jesus. Or we're with Jesus because we love what Jesus brings into our life. This is the way Jesus says it in John's Gospel. You only follow me because of the miracles, because of the fishes and the loaves. As soon as the miracles stop, you're through following me. And this is something I think should sober all of us. Would I keep following Jesus if I knew he wouldn't come through for me another time? If I knew he would never come through when I needed to pay the bills the next time, would I still follow him? If I knew that no prayer I was going to ask was going to get answered the way I wanted it to be answered, would I pray again? Or am I only interested in the Jesus who loads down my boat with the fish? They left everything and followed him. So when he he takes you out into the deep and he opens you up to great sorrow and to great mystery, he's preparing you to live a different kind of life than you would have wanted to live otherwise. He's preparing you to be ready to walk away from all of the blessings that have come into your life. This is why the rich young ruler can't follow Jesus. He comes to Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, here are the laws, here are the the commandments. I've done all that, and it's in his mind, because he's done all that, that he's wealthy. He's, I mean, it's the end of Deuteronomy, right? Moses says, I set before you two ways, two mountains, and two ways. If you obey the commandments, you will prosper. If you disobey the commandments, you will suffer. And here's a young man, who has obeyed all the commandments, and what's happened? He's prospered. But it's that prospering, it's that blessing that locks the door for him so that he can't follow Jesus. Because he's not, at least at this point in his life, he's not interested in Jesus. He's interested in what Jesus can do for him. But that's the difference between love and lust. Lust is interested in what the person can do for you. Love cares about the person, even if they can't do anything for you. Wow. Wow. And some of us, I think, are in lust with Jesus. We love what Jesus can do for us. But there comes a point in which he pushes you out in the deep and says, let's get beyond lust. Let's get beyond what I can do for you. This is is about love. This is about you and me. And if I never, never do another miracle in your life, will you follow me? Will you be with me? Will you leave everything and follow me? There's a striking response here in that it's, it's incredibly costly for them to follow Jesus. Now, when we tell this story, we, we tell it with, with kind of gilded edges. But Peter never recovers from this following of Jesus. Like, his life is irrevocably changed now. Like, he, he walks away from what his father had done and his grandfather had done, who knows how many generations. He leaves it all. And his life continues to spin for the rest of his life until his life ends on a cross. When Jesus calls, this is the way Boniface says it, when Jesus calls a man to follow him, he calls him to come and die. And that's not the end of the story because we believe in a God who raises the dead. But if you follow Jesus, you will end up dead. Now, you're going to end up dead either way. But if you follow Jesus, you will end up dead. That's what he's calling you to. And I, I think that we have to prepare ourselves for that sacrifice. One of the readings for the day in the lectionary is Isaiah 6, the calling of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, you know, you know the passage. You've heard, you've heard it many times. He's in the temple. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, right? Sees his train, fill the temple. The, the doors are shaking, And Isaiah has this moment of, woe is me, right? I'm undone. I'm I'm a sinner and I live amongst sinners. How, how How can I live through seeing the Lord? And you know the story, the angel takes the coal and touches Isaiah's lips. And then Isaiah hears the Lord ask a question. Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And so far, so good. We love to preach that story because it's a story about seeing this awesome, powerful God, a presence that shakes the room and fills the room, and then we respond with a recognition of what we're not. I'm, I'm undone. I'm unclean. God heals us and sanctifies us, and then we respond for the mission. But what we don't talk about very much is what happens next. Look at Isaiah 6. Now, I don't know your experience. I've never heard a sermon that makes it all the way to verse 9. I've heard a lot of sermons on Isaiah 6 that make it to verse 8. But we don't cross the threshold into verse 9. So let's start there, verse 9. Isaiah has just said, here I am, send me. And so God responds. Go and say to this people, keep listening. But do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull, and stop their ears and shut their eyes, so that they may not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and comprehend with their minds, and turn and be healed. Now notice Isaiah's response How long, O Lord? Right? Because when he finally hears what God wants him to do, which is go and prophesy to a people in ways that keep them from hearing what God is saying. Prophesy to them so they don't understand. Isaiah's response is, wait a minute. How long do I have to do that? Right? I mean, just a couple moments ago, Isaiah was was ready to go, right? He's seen the Lord high and lifted up, right? He's, he's seen the building shake with the glory of God. He's ready to go. Send me. And God says, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and prophesy in ways that never bring about the work of God. I want you to go and speak and never be understood. And Isaiah quite understandably says, um, what, how, what, how long? And God responds with even more good news. (laughs) Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even a tenth part remains in it, it will be burned again. Even if a tenth part remains in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So God says, until everything is devastated, so much so that if there's one stump with seed in it, they burn the stump. That's how long I want you to prophesy. Because when God calls us, some people, it's true, some people God calls to miraculous, powerful, effective ministry. But most of us are called to this kind of ministry. Most of us are going to live and die, and the world is not going to feel a ripple from what we've done for God. You realize, now we know Isaiah as the prophet, but we know Isaiah because of a text. The people who actually lived with Isaiah didn't recognize who he was. Isaiah didn't know who he was because in the actual experience of being Isaiah the prophet, the response is not revival. The response is not the glory of the Lord sweeping the land, the glory of God that he sees in the temple. He doesn't see again. He prophesies, and nothing happens. And I I think when God calls you, he calls you with this question. Will you work with me if your work is meaningless? I have a friend, Chris Chris and I have a, a good mutual friend who tells a story I think that cuts right to the heart of this. He talks about being in prayer one day and and agonizing with God and saying at one point in the prayer, God, I will do anything. I will be a missionary. I will be a pastor. I will be a teacher. I, I will be whatever you want me to be as long as I can do something great for you. And he heard God say, you're not interested in me. You just want to do something great. Will we do God's work if nobody hears it? If nobody responds? If the land is utterly desolate and even the stumps that are left get burned again? That's what calling is about. Because we don't respond to the call of God because we actually have ulterior motives of making a name for ourselves. If we do, he'll purge that out of us. I, I think, I would certainly say this is true of me. I think this is true of almost anyone who's called into ministry. When we respond to Jesus' call, what's responding is our ego. Jesus is calling me because he knows what I can do. Of course he's calling me. I mean, who wouldn't want to use all this talent? It can't go to waste. I mean, God, God broke the mold when he was done making me. But the, but the hard truth is, the work you're going to do, the work that I'm going to do, from a historical, worldly perspective, isn't going to matter much. Who knows what God's going to do with it? Because God is a God who raises the dead. God is a God for whom nothing is impossible. Right? God is a God who takes the story of this prophet Isaiah and makes it the primary witness to what's going to come in Christ. But we can't know what he's going to do with our life after the fact. But the fact of the matter is, if I really want to respond to his call faithfully, I have to be willing to say, God, I'll follow you and I'll work with you if that means my work is a failure. If my work is meaningless if every book i write and every sermon i preach falls to the ground and it's forgotten i'll do what you ask me to do because this isn't about being effective this isn't about it certainly isn't about becoming famous or becoming known for doing the work of god this is about you and god this is about loving god this is about loving your neighbor And and there's there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong, hear me, there's nothing wrong with taking delight in doing the work of God. But there's a way in which that very easily can turn back on you. Because if if you love to sing, but you love to sing because you love the response people have to your singing, God's not going to let that stay. Or you love to preach. But you love to preach because you love the response you get to the preaching. I mean, that's about flesh. That's about ego. And, and God will tolerate it when you're young. But there's going to come a point in your life when he, he won't tolerate it anymore. And part of the calling into maturity, calling out into the depths, is to say, God, I don't want to do ministry because it somehow feeds my ego. I'll tell you another story of a friend of mine who had incredible talent. I mean, truly, truly incredible talent as, as a minister, as a pastor, as a preacher. And he was going from church to church because every church he would go to, he would end up in controversy. Either have an affair or um, something like that. And But he was so talented that people would hire him anyway, even knowing the story. And I remember having a conversation with him late in the night in which he, in tears, says, I want to break this. I hate that I'm this way. I know it's destroying people. I know it's destroying my family. And I, I, I felt like the Lord said to him, said to me for him, I will heal you if you'll give up ministry. And so I said it to him. And this is what he said. I could never do that. I don't know who I am if I'm not doing ministry. That that moment has stayed with me and haunted me all along. Because at the end of the day, if my identity is in ministry and not in the calling of God, then I will leave God keep doing my ministry. And as much as I love to do what I do, and I love to teach, I love to have moments like this with you, but I hope that if it came down to it, I would shut this Bible and walk away from this pulpit and cling to God. I'm almost done. So there's this moment, the fish are brought into the boat, and Peter, dramatic, I mean Peter's a little bit of a drama queen, he falls at Jesus' feet and says, depart from me, I'm a sinner. And this, this happens throughout scripture where God appears and people's response is, I'm a sinner. I, we just read a passage in Isaiah. The, the epistle reading for today is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about encountering Jesus. And listen, listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read this to you quickly. Paul is talking about all these people who saw the resurrected Jesus. And last of all, Paul says, I saw him. Then he says, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And there's, there's something that happens to Isaiah. Woe is me, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Something that happens to Paul, I'm the least of these, and I'm not worthy, I'm not fit to be called an apostle. And Peter, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinner. There's something about an encounter with God that our first instinct is to say, Woe is me! And there's a certain way of preaching these stories that makes that seem righteous. That what God wants from us is groveling, that what God wants from us is this kind of humiliation and withdrawal. But in every one of these cases, God's response is not, yeah, you're right, you are unworthy. God's response is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I mean, here here is Peter, overwhelmed at the holiness and glory of Jesus, and he thinks the right thing to do is to think of himself as less. But God doesn't need you to be less in order for his glory to be known. And there's a religious impulse that's in all of us to think that if I humiliate myself, if I, if I think of myself as less, that reflects God and God's glory. But Jesus' response to Peter is, don't be afraid. Now, it's not that Peter's wrong. I mean, he is a sinner. In fact, he's much, much worse a sinner than he realizes I mean, when Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinner, you know, he's probably thinking of things like, yeah, I watched that R-rated movie. I should not have been watching that. What's actually true of Peter, of course, is that he's going to deny Jesus three times. He's going to take Jesus aside and tell him that he can't die on a cross because that's not what messiahs do. I mean, you realize in just a few months from this time, Jesus is going to call Peter Satan. Peter has no idea what he's confessing when he says, I'm a sinner. Brennan Manning, if you haven't read his story, you need to know his story. Brennan Manning tells about a time in which he's praying and he's feeling convicted about himself and overwhelmed. and And he says to God, I'm a failure. And this was God's response to Brennan Manning. You're much more of a failure than you realize. (laughs) And I expect more failure from you than you could ever expect from yourself. And I'm still calling you. I think about what's happening in this moment in this boat. Jesus knows that this man, Peter, is going to lecture him about how to be Messiah. And he still calls him. He knows that this man, Peter, is going to deny him three times, and he still calls him. He knows that this man, Peter, is going to break fellowship with the Gentiles because of pressure from the church in Jerusalem, and he still calls him. And when Jesus calls you, he knows that you are much worse off than you think you are. I mean, you may think you're a sinner. You're a much worse sinner than you realize. I mean, you feel, it's the tip of the iceberg. You feel guilt for this. You don't even know all of the stuff that's wrong with you. Like, overwhelmingly, the sin in your life you're completely unaware of. I mean, you feel so much guilt and shame for stuff that really doesn't matter much. You are a really bad person. I'm a really bad person. And still, God says, follow me. Because God's not worried or afraid of our sin or our failure. He's not intimidated by associating with people who are going to mess it up. There's that line in the book of Hebrews where he says, he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now, he probably should be. We're a shameful lot. But there's something about Jesus that is just impervious to shame. He doesn't mind being known as your friend and mine. And no matter what comes out about you, no matter what you do a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now, remember, he called you knowing that. If a year from now, you wake up on a Sunday morning and you think, you know what? I don't have any faith left. I'm filled with hate and bitterness and resentment and confusion. This is what I want you to remember. He called you knowing that. He's not afraid of your doubt, of your hurt, of your anger. He called you knowing that. I'm going to end with this. Go to John 21. I know this is taking a long time. I'm almost done. John 21. This is, again, a very strange story. It begins in the early, uh, opening verses with Peter saying, I'm going fishing. And what's striking about this is he left all that, and then he has his failures including cutting the ear off the high priest's servant in the garden. I mean, everything Peter touched turned to ash. And then Jesus appears to them, shows himself the resurrected, breathes the Holy Spirit on them. And even after all of that, Peter still says, I'm going fishing. And he brings all of these people with him. You notice Jesus told Peter... I will make you a fisher of men. Now, we usually hear that passage as if Jesus is saying it to all the disciples, but that's not what Luke says. What Luke says is Jesus said to Peter, I will make you a fisher of men. And we almost always hear that as an evangelistic call, right? Catching people means bringing people to Jesus. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I think what he meant is you are the kind of person who's going to draw other people into the work I've called you to do. Your boat is going to bring another boat alongside it. And and I think that's clear because Jesus says that to him, I'll make you fisher of men. And the very next line is, and they left all and followed Jesus. That Peter caught James and John, his partners, and he carried them with him into the ministry. Jesus didn't say to to James and John, I'll make you fishers of men. He said to Peter, I'll make you a fisher of men. And James and John get stuck to Peter and dragged into the ministry. But notice at this point, we're told that Peter is there with Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, and two other disciples. These people are clinging to Peter. He's a fisher of men. He can't help but catch people. But now he's dragging them away from their calling instead of into it. And so he's, he says, I'm going fishing. And they said, well, if you're going, we're going too. And they, they go fishing. They fish all night, and they don't catch anything. Sound familiar? And then the sun comes up, and there's a stranger on the shore that says, cast your net on the other side. And they do it. And they catch more fish than they've caught since that day early on in their life with Jesus. And then John says, it's the Lord. He recognizes, oh, hey, this has happened before. And this time, Peter doesn't fall on his knees. He jumps out of the boat and swims to Jesus. There's a progression in the, in the Luke text where the first time Peter addresses Jesus, he calls him teacher. Teacher, whatever you want to do, we'll do it. The second time he addresses Jesus, he calls him Lord. But there's a progression in these two stories that the first time he encounters the Lord, he falls on, a knee, on his knees and says, oh, I'm, I'm nothing. But the second time he sees the Lord, he's not worried about being nothing. He just wants to get to Jesus. And this, this is what I want for you and for myself, is to be the kind of person who can, in the midst yeah, I'm, I'm fishing again. I shouldn't be fishing again, but here I am. I'm fishing again. I should, I should have outgrown this a long time ago, but here I am. But when I hear Jesus, I'm jumping in the water and swimming to him. And he gets to the shore, and you, you know the story now. He gets to the shore. Jesus is cooking. And after they've eaten, Jesus takes Peter aside and says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, I love you. Yes, yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know. Lord, you know. I love you. And what I think has happened here between the young, well, he wasn't young, but the immature Peter at the beginning of this story is that he thought he knew himself. By the end of the story, he knows that it doesn't matter if he knows himself or not. What matters is that Jesus knows him. Lord, you know. This is living into your calling. It's not to know yourself. Listen, God's mysterious, and the world is broken, and you will never really know who you are. Not really. You're capable of things you cannot imagine you're capable of. And your life can change and may change in a moment. And you'll say, Who am I? Where did this come from? I can't believe I'm doing this. And when you find yourself in that moment, remember your calling is not based in your self understanding. This is not about you coming to know yourself, this is about being known. This is what Paul says to the Galatians. For we know him, or better, we are known by him. And the good news of, of all of, for all of us is that this is not about me understanding myself. This is not even about me understanding him. This is about me being understood by him. And he does all of this knowing us better than we know ourselves. He called Peter, knowing everything about that man's story. Not what had happened, what was going to happen. And he still said, follow me. And what I want you to hear me saying, and I really, I've really, i got to stop and get out of the way. But what I want you to hear me saying is, no matter where you are today, whether you feel strong in your faith, filled with the joy of the Lord, Or you feel deserted? He knew that, and he called you. And a year from now, or 10 years from now, if you turn around and you don't recognize yourself anymore, and you don't understand how you got where you are, he knew that. There is nothing to be afraid of. Because here's the best news possible. When we say to Jesus, depart from me, he never listens to us. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.